Hello, welcome back to Medic Minutes, the British Columbia Emergency Health Service podcast for paramedics. I'm Leon Baranowski, paramedic practice leader in clinical medical programs, your host for today's episode. And joining me is... So I'm Mike Christian, the uh, research and clinical effectiveness lead and one of the doctors in London's Air Ambulance, previously from Ontario, Canada. And I'm Gordon Meinecker, a primary care paramedic from Vancouver Island and a UBC medical student. So as you heard then, Mike's joining us from a role in uh, London Air Ambulance. We're going to have a little bit of more of a conversation on the, the topic that you presented at our BCHS clinical rounds. And the title of the presentation that you delivered was Out of the Frying Pan into the Fire, Building Resilience to Operational Stress and Exposures to Trauma. So first of all, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of background about yourself and your own journey as to, to how you got to London Hems and where you came from. Sure, that's, uh, that's great. It's it kind of ironic that uh, you have the accent I have the the location right now but uh, um, yeah so my obviously started off uh, originally as a paramedic myself in uh, Ontario and did that uh, quite a few years ago um, 30 some odd now unfortunately and then went into medicine uh, became an intensive care physician military physician uh, and did that for a number of years worked my way up uh, left the military and took an executive role in uh, executive leadership in a hospital before deciding it was time before I got uh, too old to uh, get back into the pre-hospital world and do my dream job head across the pond to do a sabbatical with London Hems. And so your presentation today was about your, your well-established uh, personal journey uh, throughout your career, paramedic physician, military doctor, uh, and dealing with what could be described as mainly the worst of the worst in terms of trauma and, and complex issues that most people often only see once in a, in a lifetime. Um, can you tell us about the work that you've been doing around um, uh, resilience and kind of what led you to pursue this as a, a topic or area of interest? Yeah, so I think this is one of those things where it uh, it happened more by by chance than by intent. Uh, I was and certainly brought into this because of um, the initiative of a medical student who's in the video named Matt. And uh, I think I started to think a little bit about it after I had uh, um, had an experience at a conference here run by my friend where I did a, a little quiz about burnout and realized that I was a little bit high on the on the burnout scale, slightly towards crispy, and uh, but didn't ever see myself as a person that would be burned out. You know, was enthusiastic about my job, loved my work, would do the long hours, all those things. So not my stereotype of uh, of what a burnt out person is or someone at risk of, of burnout, and. Uh, started to think about my career and background and um, read a book by a, a colleague of mine uh, called Blue, which is a, by a, a Met police officer, the chief command, uh, chief superintendent. And his uh, discussion about every contact leaves a trace and his experience with, um, with PTSD and the impact that what he saw had on him had me think a little more about this. And then I had this job with a medical student and, uh, and really it was his response afterwards and the fact that it seems so unique, the things that we were doing there in terms of debriefing and support and talking about these issues and the complete lack of that in medical school or any other training that really made me decide um, that uh, I need to do my part to help others, but also help myself through this. So Mike, can you describe um, some of the similarities and differences between uh, London HEMS and the way that HEMS operates in Canada currently? 
Yeah, so I think um, so similarities are that it, it definitely has highly motivated and passionate people who have a you know great skill set and and go above and beyond to uh, to care for patients. Uh, that's definitely common to both practices that I've seen in Ontario and and uh, what I know of the BC system and and in London. I think the difference, one of the main differences. Uh, between the two is that uh, HEMS is, is in London in particular is purely a pre-hospital scene response so it's uh, all in the acute management and certainly in Ontario at Orange um, the vast majority of the calls are, are actually interfacility transport and retrieval medicine and I think it's sort of more of a similar mix here so less acute on scene more uh, interfacility transport and much much longer distances. Our average flight time in London is six minutes. Um, here, it's uh, more like six hours most of the time, I imagine, um, for the fixed wing anyway. So it's, it's much longer uh, uh, flights than, than we have. So it's a, a bit of a different, um, a different focus in terms of, of what happens. So you, you touched on debriefs and that being part of the kind of the process for what they used at London HEMS. In your presentation, this morning you listed some uh, resiliency lessons from HEMS that uh, potentially we could all learn from. Can you describe this and give our listeners some advice on uh, building resilience as a paramedic? Yeah, so I think, uh, so a few things. I think, uh, so some of them are systems issues and some of them are individual issues. And so the systems issues that I talked about within HEMS, one of them was certainly the, the debriefs and just actually having routine debriefs after every job. And that's really about improving, uh, sorry, improving performance of the of the team and our patient care more than sort of the psychological aspects. But I think it has a, a knock-on benefit, side benefit to the to the psychological impact it can have on people. And that's really just around being able to address questions, allay fears, let people know that uh, you know that they did the right thing uh, in the moment if they have any concerns, and to and to give a little bit of that broader perspective to the job, because a lot of times it's it helps people put the different pieces into sequence, and and that frames the the job for them differently. Um, we do that as a hot debrief with as many of the responders we could who are on scene, and then as just a HEMS team debrief afterwards which really focused was much more on the uh, on the clinical response and the human factors and the interpersonal um, uh, response of the uh, of sort of relationship with the team on that job the other part of it is what we call death and disability rounds and that's part of our clinical governance structure where twice a week we really do an in-depth dissection of cases and you're you're asked to to walk through all the critical decisions on a job it's an opportunity to to learn from other people that are there about how they may have handled it and think about different approaches um, but also to uh, for those that are there to learn from your experience of uh, when they haven't been on the job so you can transfer that knowledge but I think the other big thing about it is that it helps people go through in their minds and, and come to terms of the fact that, you know, the, the things that they did do right and when there was something that they, they, they didn't necessarily do or could have improved upon, um, they, you know, they're aware of it as opposed to, I think we're always or often far more self-critical than others are critical of us. And it's that nagging internal thought that sits there and ruminates time, times that I think causes a lot of stress for people. Um, some of the other systems are the uh, are part of the systems issues are the the type of team we have the um, the training that we go through is definitely a part of it and the you know it's almost a component of stress inoculation but it's really um, just 
ensuring that you're uh, you have the um, the skills and bandwidth when you're in the job. One of the things that uh, has been written about is this concept of a challenge versus threat mindset that you go into these issues with. And whenever you face um, uh, sort of like the fight or flight or saber tooth tiger kind of a, uh, issue from our evolution, and if you are uh, if you view something as a as a threat then it causes your, your adrenaline, your stress hormones to go up, you become more stressed, it decreases your performance and you get into a negative feedback cycle and you can actually get worse and worse. If you view something as a challenge that you're up for the task of, of, of handling and, and responding to, then you're actually more confident, your stress levels go down, you perform better. And I think the training just helps reassure people and gives them that sense that, you know, I've, done, I've been there before, I've done this, you know, we can handle this job and, um, and builds that sort of challenge mindset rather than threat mindset. And uh, I think the last thing is just a supportive workplace and, and the relationship we, that we have with each other. So that's on the big picture side, the system side. And then the, the individual side is really just things about um, strength and understanding that strength isn't being a brick wall, but being more resilient and being able to bounce back and respond and adapt and change to adversity and that it's not a weakness to have these things impact you, that you don't have to do, just be this solid impenetrable wall um, to, uh, to get through these things. Uh, the vulnerability to, to ask for help and be willing to do it, uh, self-awareness uh, of what you experience and your signs and symptoms and things that, that may put you at risk, and um, as well as I talk a bit about failures and the importance of, of failure to help develop resilience because if everything if, if life's a, a walk in the park I don't think you ever really truly become resistant or resilient and it's the uh, um, it's these ups and downs that that make us stronger over time what you were talking about earlier really resonates in the sense that uh, sometimes I do worry that resilience gets thrown around as a as almost a buzzwordy it becomes a quality that people want to have and I worry sometimes that the term resilience used in the wrong context can actually steer people away from reaching out. They want to be that, that quote, resilient person who can bounce back, who doesn't necessarily need to go and seek help. And um, so I, I really like that answer of like, it includes vulnerability, it includes being able to reach out when you need it and that having that awareness of, of when you might be experiencing burnout and fatigue on the job. Yeah, there's a great uh, quote from uh, the professor who uh, developed a program called TRIM in the UK, which the military uses for uh, for psychological uh, um, sort of uh, operational stress disorder and things. And uh, But his, his quote is, resilience lies not within people but between them. And it's all that it's about the connections between people, and that's really where um, where this comes from. It's not necessarily an individual personal trait. When you do these debriefs, like what makes a good debrief? Like if we're talking about bumper talk or just casually discussing a call afterwards, leaving that, what do you feel like you've taken away, or what should kind of the general feeling be amongst the crew? So I think it's a good debrief. So. I'll start with a feeling amongst the crew, because I think that's the most important way to judge whether it was um, effective. One is that I think uh, people need to feel um, positive and reassured at the end of it. You shouldn't, people shouldn't leave it feeling like, oh crap, I've screwed up or something like that. Um, because 
I think, and it's not that we gloss over things that aren't done well, but it's it's feedback that's given in a in a constructive manner, and it's also recognizing what stuff you should address in the hot debrief and what stuff you need to take um, uh, address later on, because the is the person ready for that information at this moment and that learning opportunity, or is now not the right time to do it? So I think that's where part of the skill and stuff comes from, and why having some people that uh, are experienced at it can be helpful to to lead them. Uh, I think the uh, a couple of things that you make sure everyone gets some airtime if they want it, um, and uh, and that it's a sort of a balanced kind of a opportunity. Really, it's we sort of usually do them just by sort of chronologically, sort of quickly walking through the job and having everyone in terms of their order that they showed up, start to discuss what what was happening when they got there, what they did, and, and then the next sort of thing. And that's mostly just to get people talking a little bit. And to be honest, it also helps me do my paperwork because <laughs> I get the whole story. Um, so you're killing two birds at one stone, uh, with one stone, but also. Um, it sort of gets people talking, gives everyone a little bit of airtime. That way, breaks the uh, breaks the ground, and then we sort of talk about where there any issues or challenges you had, any questions that you you had about this. And again, it's it's mostly clinically focused, but the opportunity is there for people to address human factors issues, CRM issues, or other questions. And I think it's um, it's through that uh, that ability to talk about those things that helps mitigate some of the impact it's not a a psychological you know post uh, um, critical instant debrief kind of thing focused on the psychological aspects at all and then the technological advancements that we were discussing earlier on around the utilization of apps and having somewhat a digital debrief uh, and connecting people in a different way rather than just maybe the physical um, meeting that usually occurs post incident yeah, so this is something that we um, we're using an app in in London Hems now called Good Sam, which uh, Mark Wilson, who's one of our one of our former Hems doctors, uh, he developed, and it's a it, it has multiple functions. Uh, part of it is 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 basically um, for alerting first responders to cardiac arrests, the location of AEDs, and all that type of stuff. But what they've they've built a number of additional layers into it, uh, and a couple of layers include um, uh, people who are community first responders able to or or citizens able to you know, enter some data into a, a report after they've done the done a job. But they've also included with that. Uh, in the thing, there's a communication, point-to-point communication, but also a web conferencing setup. So, and, and they've some areas that are using Good Sam have started to use the web conferencing aspect to uh, convene a virtual debrief after the job. So, if you have a police or firefighter or first responder or some of like that um, you know, at different locations at an hour after the job or whatever, and you brought the patient to hospital, you can all convene on this web conference and do a quick debrief that way, which uh, sounds like a very interesting and helpful, uh, you know, potential utility. Yeah, definitely. I could see a lot of use definitely within our system to connect rural and remote paramedics with some of our ACPs in our urban centers, as well as a lot of the FR departments that respond to our, you know, most serious calls as a way of having that debrief and potentially being led from a central uh, contact point with somebody that maybe as you said earlier on, is educated and is uh, has some awareness of how to 
formally lead a debrief um, with some structure and with some kind of rigor to it, know what areas to get into in the discussions and the conversations. Just to change gears um, a little bit, one thing I kind of want to explore with you is identity. Um, you're a paramedic, you're a physician, you've been in the military. Um, and certainly for me, kind of changing systems from um, the UK where I practice as a, a paramedic and on HEMS to the position that I've got here now in PCHS, um, how we identify as paramedics, I find is a little bit different. We definitely associate as being more healthcare professionals and more integrated in healthcare in, in the UK as paramedics versus what I kind of still see here, which is public service. And we still have some connotations of the military background and the military history in which paramedicine kind of came from. Do you think that the way that paramedics identify within their roles has anything to do with the way that they process and see um, um, burnout and PTSD and, and, and the trauma? I don't, I don't necessarily know if it has much to do with how they identify in their roles. Um, I think there may be some issues related because, you know, we see issues around PTSD are, um, and, and burnout or compassion fatigue or uh, moral injury, whichever you want to call the various spectrum that these probably exist upon, are, are very common in both healthcare workers and first responders of other types. So you see it in nurses and doctors and people who practice critical care in hospitals, but you also see it in police officers and firefighters and the military. So I think it exists in both, both camps. So I think it'd be hard to say it's only because of one. I do, and this is more in the UK, um, what I've been seeing there in some of the ambulance services, because they uh, still have a fairly, also a fairly paramilitary hierarchy in some areas. Um, and it's more in terms of the management structure and the leadership side. They have a lot of people who were ex-military that have come. And one of the things that I've certainly observed is that uh, you know the military has moved on, or leadership styles in the military are very different now than they were 5, 10, 20 years ago for sure. Um, a great book about that is uh, called Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette, and that's a fascinating book. He, was, uh, he took the, the, the worst performing um, nuclear submarine in the U.S. Navy and turned it into the, the best performing uh, submarine and most successful in terms of future leaders that came out of, out of that submarine. And, you know, it's really about changing the dogma around, uh, around leadership and how the, the culture of an organization I do think that some of the uh, paramilitary sort of ambulance service organizations that have people that have left the military in the past, uh, they're a little bit frozen in time when they leave in terms of leadership styles, and that sticks. Uh, I often equate it to friends of mine that uh, in the Toronto area that were immigrants from other countries, and their families came from Italy or Spain or Portugal a long time ago. When they left those countries, they brought with them the language as it was the time. And they go back to those countries now and, and their family members and friends there kind of make fun of them because they're speaking an old dialect. It's, you know, once you take something out of a culture, it tends to freeze in time and doesn't advance. And I think similar things can happen with leadership styles sometimes and, and culture. So if you take some stuff from the military a long time ago and then you implant it in another place where it doesn't have the same advances that is occurring you know, naturally in the military that that gets frozen. And I do think there's potentially some issues around what I've seen in some of the leadership structures in the, in the UK and approaches to, to leadership and management that are not beneficial for 
um, creating the environment where people will have healthy responses to these types of events and be supported in a in, in what I think is the the better way to to mitigate that. So maybe an indirect link as opposed to direct identity. So you and one of your colleagues, Dr. Matthew Walton, produced a documentary about resilience. Would anyone be able to watch this documentary? Where could do we could divert our listeners to to to, to find out more? Yeah, so they're all on YouTube, and I'll I said I'll send the links around with the with the webcast. But if you just want to find them, if you uh, if you uh, Google Matt Walton um, uh, on YouTube, and I think it's Matt Walton Medical, and you type in resilience, the the two videos should show up on his uh, on his website. They're also available on a few other sites now too. Awesome. We talked about kind of building resiliency. There's a lot of people that listen to these podcasts that are going to be potentially coming into paramedicine. Uh, and one thing I wanted to, to kind of get your get your uh, position on or a view on is uh, how we can do better to prepare people coming into paramedicine. And, you know, are we seeing this, this new generation of people coming up as well that, you know, outside of being resilient to paramedicine just aren't resilient to, to challenges in day-to-day activities within their lives and how do we how do we get a message across to people about the work that you're potentially going to be doing as a paramedic and how to prepare for paramedicine or even other uh, other roles and, and um, first responder um, type commitments that people make uh, in your presentation this morning you you had a video of a student paramedic uh, and they were talking about kind of their experience so I'm just intrigued to to hear what your thoughts are on what we could kind of do there. Yeah, so I think uh, a couple of points around, around that. One is that um, I think it's, it's our role sort of in terms of the old guys at the moment <laughs> is, to, uh, is to start the conversation and to make the resources available and to help sort of uh, uh, put it on the agenda for uh, for students and new people coming in. I, I really think that it's the generation of Matt and similar colleagues to to take this on and say, how do you make this work for your generation? Uh, I, I, you know, there's a lot of discussion I've had recently with some other people as well about are there generational differences between um, sort of the current generation and the millennials and others, uh, as snowflakes as they're <laughs> pejoratively called. Um, and I think the answer is probably yes. Uh, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that uh, uh, you know some of the issues that they care about, uh, work-life balance, and those issues are things, lessons that you know I definitely got wrong in my life to this point, and that uh, having that awareness and and seeking that balance to begin with is probably a good thing. Um, but I think we need to ensure that we have education available. We talk to them up front um, about these topics so they know what they're getting into and they can hopefully start a career unlike myself where I sort of later on had to do, uh, had to sort of, uh, luckily before I got into any serious difficulties, but, you know, could have easily um, got into problems. Uh, you know, I tidied up my mental hygiene and started to, to work on this more, but hopefully they can go into that up front with good, you know, skills and a healthy uh, approach to it and and, uh, and, a, and a mindset for, for dealing with these things as opposed to having to retrospectively uh, try and address them. Uh, we talked about uh, what organizations can do to um, put more of a career pathway in front of people and um, in some places create rotational models which haven't quite got to 
to paramedicine yet in Canada uh, with broader roles outside of ambulance services. So you're going to talk a little bit more about kind of what we discussed earlier and how that can help contribute to better resilience and less burnout and, and engagement with work. Sure. Well, that's in itself a whole other podcast. <laughs> but um, I, I think, yeah, it's certainly the, the things that we know about burnout and about PTSD are some of the things I talked about uh, at Prof. Williams talking about the secondary stressors. And, and those are often related to issues around uh, work, work culture, the um, uh, if you have a sense of meaning in your work and purpose and, and those types of things. I think the uh, you know, trying to have an organizational culture uh, that values a cares for the, the, the employee and cares for the, the, the people that are in the organization, but also thinks about them in terms of how do they uh, find meaning and, and benefit in their work. And the Mayo Clinic um, paper that I referenced talks about having a balance in in people's work lives with a certain 80-20 rule where 80% of what they do should be um, targeted at meeting the objectives of the organizations and the priorities set by the organizations, but 20% should be of that person's interest. And that's how you start to stimulate them and their, keep them motivated and engaged and, and enthusiastic. So looking at what motivates people, what do they, how do they find benefit and, um, in their, or pleasure in their work and meaning. And you kind of mentioned their um, system, like a system of care um, and understanding the patient's journey. I'm just going to bring it back in a circle to what you discussed earlier on about the, uh, the rounds that you make as HEMS teams and how that plays a part in your resilience and understanding about outcomes of patients and um, how that can maybe somewhat kind of settle your mind and and you give up that tug and war game of did I make the right choice did I not make the right choice if only I knew uh, what the outcome was for the patient and we're still making leaps uh, and bounds to improve that process internally so we can get that information back to paramedics but how um, how does the rest of the organizations that you've worked for go about kind of bringing that practice into to play so we can start to close the loop for a lot of our paramedics on on patient outcomes yeah, so there's a couple of ways. So in HEMS, one of the things that we have, which we're privileged to have as a patient liaison nurse who works with the HEMS team and follows up all of our patients, does um, that serves two roles. One is to be a support to the family and to help to connect them with other resources and help them through the process of recovering from this trauma as well as the patient. But that also maintains the relationship and there's nothing that is more motivating or um, rewarding or reassuring as when you have a patient come back and visit you uh, in the hospital or on the helipad after you know they've recovered and to be able to talk to them and have them tell you their experience and we definitely you know learn important things about you know are we doing well in terms of pain management and comforting patients and whatnot but also the things that we may worry about the patient says no no it was it was, it was really good and i'm happy and grateful and and you know thankful for what happened and, and that definitely can uh, help lay, allay some fears so that's sort of our hems approach plus we're very connected to the hospitals um, because of our our physicians working in and out of the in and out of the hospital uh, and on the uh, on the helicopter, but uh, there's a program that a, para, uh, that a doctor started in um, 
in uh, London, which is this whole process of, of working with the system to get feedback uh, to paramedics. And because they recognize just on, the, on a regular day-to-day basis the importance of having that feedback. And he's uh, um, got some support from the NHS and authorities to try and overcome some of the barriers. At uh, a research meeting I had this week here with BC Trauma Services and BCHS, we were talking about some strategies to maybe do that. And I think you know, they need to look at ways so that it's actually built into an automatic um, part of data that comes back into the EPR, that uh, uh, the um, uh, electronic patient report form that, uh, that yet you create and that uh, you know, you're not going and searching for the patients, but um, since it's all part of one big data lake, that eventually uh, this information gets fed back to you uh, so you can go into your own report, you know, a couple months down the road and see, uh, you know, this, oh, yeah, I remember this patient and this is what key outcome uh, measures were for that patient down the road. But that's built into the system as part of a quality improvement process. That would be an ideal type of thing to create down the road. Okay, Mike, so just getting towards the end of the podcast, if you could give us three things from a system perspective that we should be looking to, to implement or move forward with and three things that we as paramedics can do to improve our resilience, what would they be? So from a systems perspective, I think three things. So the number one has to be about an organization that cares for people and that to have a, a culture and a leadership model that recognizes uh, the importance of supporting people and, uh, and as David Marquette says, emancipating them and creating leaders throughout the organization as opposed to a, a leading and following organization so that people are able to to control their own destiny in their, in their future. Um, I think sort of tied with that is recognizing the role of secondary stressors and, and how the organization can, can mitigate that. And the third is is recognize that there is a uh, the benefit of this is not just to the individual person who works for the organization, but very much so it's it's for the patient. But there's also good evidence that it uh, will help with cost effectiveness of, of the overall organization. And so there's there's a number of reasons to do this. It's you know, and that for all these reasons, it's worth investing in this type of a of approach in this issue. The in terms of the in terms of the personal issues. I think um, Matt, at the end of the video, says uh, the things that are key. I think one is to uh, to talk to people and to be willing to, to talk to each other about this and start the conversation, either if it's about yourself or if you see someone, um, that uh, a partner, a colleague that you're, that you're concerned about, or just, you know, use open-ended questions that you, you know that they're they know you're open to discussing these topics too is is for our future um, teach and tell students and about this and ensure that uh, that we put this on the agenda of training and education and I think the uh, the third thing is to recognize that uh, um, in order to you know perform optimally at your your job and and your role that you not only have to be you know an excellently skilled clinician and, and physically fit but also mentally and psychologically fit and so take care of yourself and and seek the uh, the tools and the and the resources to help uh, to achieve all three of those 
Okay, great. Thanks, Mike, for uh, your talk today. For those that missed the BCHS uh, clinical rounds this morning, the video will be uploaded of Mike's presentation to the BCHS Clinical and Professional Practice YouTube page. Um, as always, um, we want to thank our guests, Mike and Gord, for joining us today and sharing their expertise and their experience. For those that uh, may not be aware, we do have our critical incident stress management team, as well as the Homewood Health Solutions employee program that's available for all of our staff members, of which the information can be found on the BCHS intranet site in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, as always, we want your feedback. You can email us directly at podcast at bchs.ca. We hope that you enjoy these podcasts and that they form part of interesting information for your practice. My name is Leon Baranowski and that concludes another episode of Medic Minutes. Thanks for listening.